0: What are cryptocurrencies? Hey hey hey. What
1: are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin.
2: Bitcoin just seems like
1: a scam. so to the
2: so in our next episode of, uh, of this collaboration between Ledger and FWB uh, about creative custody, happy to welcome Sarah Drinkwater. Um, Thank you. And Sarah, could you tell our audience, you know, who you are, what you've been doing? I mean, I wouldn't even want to start on your resume. Uh, you know, you have one of the longest <laughs> LinkedIn pages I've ever seen. A, tell us. Tell us He's a very you,
1: old Ian. All right.
2: Tell us. Tell us <laughs> who, yeah, to, I'm with you on major. that. Tell us, tell us who, who you are and where you've been.
1: Yeah, um, I'm a community builder and investor. I've just gone live with Common Magic. It's a pre-seed fund focused on products with community at their core. Um, I'm also a passionate long-term DAO believer. Um, I've been working in European tech for the last 15 years. I used to run a theatre company. I'm quite creative. Um, I feel like the nice thing about the modern world is this, this, you know, when I first came into tech 20 years ago, you had to define yourself in quite narrow terms. And I'm such a pluralist at heart. And I think, you know, for someone like me, I like doing lots of things. That's why my LinkedIn is so long. You try something out, you leave, you come back. Everything's learnings.
0: Um, I, I have a, a, an important question about your resume, which is that one of my favorite fun facts about you is that you have a, a like a master's in magic.
1: Um, and so I think that we can't go forward without you explaining what that means to us. Yeah, I guess, you know, I grew up in the 80s and at the time it was this golden era of TV magicians. And to me, there's two kinds of magic. There's performance magic where somebody is showing you a trick and there's belief magic. Um, and performance magic is a, it's like a really honest exchange. You know, the magician is fooling you and you're agreeing to being fooled. And I think I think there are so many exchanges in modern life that are less honest than that. But belief magic, which is more interesting to me, this kind of relates to Web3 in lots of ways. It's about collective action. It's about collective delusion. It's about collective illusion. And so for my master's, it's funny, it's the first thing, you know, Zoe, you asked me about creative custody, and the first thing I thought of was something I specialised in during my master's. So the renaissance was this crazy time of explosive information, um, this crazy time of societal change. You know, in the UK, you had a female monarch, you had working class playwrights like Shakespeare coming up, the printing press got invented. It It was a bit like now, it was a bonkers time. And I specialised in this very deep cut thing called the miscellany verse. It was like the moleskin of its day. You know, you'd have your notebook in your bag and you'd carry it around. And if somebody was putting on Hamlet, they would bring that play to your local town and they would have one script and you would copy it down, but you'd fork it. So my Hamlet would be a blonde 45-year-old woman or whatever. And so when I think about creative custody, that phrase often implies stasis. It implies putting an artifact behind glass. But I'm really interested in things that are living and breathing things that get improved on by successive generations things that get things that get improved on by different groups and so my masters I specialized in magic masculinity and renaissance verse but actually everything I cared about then power collective intelligence gender that's been massive themes in my whole life like so so when I think about magic and belief that really relates to what I care about now at the time it was like a totally wacky thing to do especially as the first person in my family to go to university, my poor parents, they were like, they were like, please become a lawyer. And I was like, I'm not going to become a lawyer. I'm going to spend a year looking at rare books and then I'm going to run a theater company. And then years later, I'll make some money later on when I come into tech finally. And I, I
0: guess I read some of your pieces that you wrote about magic, because I thought that that was after our first call together, I like went and dug in because I was totally oh, fascinated thanks. and I, I think that one of the things that stood out to me, and I think it goes to kind of what you were just talking about, and then also like what you're working on at Common Magic, which is this like, I had never thought about this before, right? Like with this belief magic, you say that there's, you know, common knowledge, solidarity networks and folklore. Um, And I love that idea. And I think dad and I talk about that so much, right? Like that human beings are all kind of connected to each other because we love stories. Right. Um, We love a good story. And so I think, you know, I'd love to talk more about like how you see that um, those kind of three things unifying both like the space Mm -hmm. of Web3, but like more specifically, like now that you've started this new fund, you're like a new solo GP, you know, how are you thinking about that in terms of your investment thesis and like, what are you looking for? I know that's a loaded question, but I think it's really interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's worth noting, you know, I'm going from being an angel investor to being a fund manager and that, you know, it's a different thing, right? I think as an angel, you're able to pursue things that are purely intellectually interesting. Um, whereas as a fund manager, you know, you've made a commitment to a certain group that you're going to steward their money and, you know, you're going to make good bets. And so I'm really aware right now of that transition that I'm making. But I guess when I think about companies and teams that I love and, you know, in the context of those three things. I love teams that have clarity of thought. They don't need to have a solution figured out, but they need to be clear to themselves and to me why they're doing what they're doing. So for me, you know, small funds, it's kind of a totally irrational thing to do at this point in time. We're at the bottom of the market. Um, You know, for me, I got to a place of absolutely irrational conviction. This was my next 20 years. Like I have a really high bar for how I spend my time. And so I could very easily be working in a cool startup or going to somebody else's fund. But I was like, oh, actually this is the thing, this is the thing I believe in more than anything else in the world. And so my bias, when I think about individuals I invest in, groups I'm part of, I want to be around people that are open-minded. I want to be around people that know themselves and can communicate really clearly. Um, You know, and if you look at Friends of Benefits as one example of an incredible community that's evolved the product, you know, you know exactly who Friends of Benefits are. It's in their tone of voice, it's in the people that you meet. I mean, you know, granted, there are differences of opinion because it's not it's not a centralized homogenous thing. But, you know, if I go to like a dinner or I meet people all over the world from Friends of benefits, I have a really clear sense of who that group is because they know who they are. And I just really lean towards groups like that. Um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's Web3 only, you know, for example, I was listening to a podcast with David Singleton from Stripe, uh, the CTO, who's one of my LPs. Um, and there were so many like friction logging, all these all these really cute distinctive phrases that I think he must have invented because either that or I've not heard of them before. But there's this kind of interesting linguistic shorthand for how they talk about the work they do. Um, and I think if I look at companies I admire or movements I admire, they very often have rituals and words they use to talk about the work they do. And that to me is always just like. I always fall in love with groups that know themselves like that and have, yeah. have ways of ritualizing the 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 act of building stuff together.
0: Yeah, and on FWB events, actually, Greg, who runs events, um, so I guess technically my boss, but it's a DAO, right? So who knows what he is. Um, but they've made this amazing, like, living document that's a pattern language, right, of how we want people to to kind of message events and, and talk, like just, you know, kind of interact with the world on behalf of FWB. So that definitely resonates and it's, it's super nerdy, right? You want to like, yeah, it's like you're, you're obsessively, uh, <laughs> curating the way that you talk to the, to the outside world. Um, but yeah, no, that's super interesting.
2: And what I wanted to ask you, I mean, to, let's put those two things together, the market and then your conviction around, around the, the thesis of, of community. Um, because you know, the, the market is epically down. Um, I'm, I'm with you in terms of, of believing, uh, that this is, you know, this is the the moment where kind of fakes get washed out and, and reels yeah. come. Um, but the question is like, or, and, and they're survived for the longer term. My, my question is like, what, what, how does that happen? Right. Um, how do you yeah. see that unfolding? Um, you know, and, and, So what makes a, what, what kind of community is going to, you know, survive for the long term and what makes a great community?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, all of us belong to distinct communities in our lives. Right. And I think great communities tend to know who they are and who they're not. They tend to be anchored around a shared mission, a shared belief, a shared goal, you know, not like, like if we're thinking about monetizable ecosystems around products, you know, that's a little bit different to like a belief community or like an identity community. But to me, if I look at, so for example, teenage engineering, um, a really cool, interesting Swedish hardware company, highly distinctive, total deep cut, people who love teenage engineering, really love teenage engineering. You know, you have, you have that kind of deep cut sub subculture or sub community, but then, you know, you also have, if I'm looking at software companies in Europe, they've been powered by community And I'm anchoring on Europe just because I'm based in London. So I looked at a lot of European companies. You know, you've got like Miro, Monzo, Depop, SoRare, um, Hugging Face, Unity, very distinct, different types of company where they're selling something a little bit different. But I think, um, you know, great communities tend to have a two-way dialogue between the centralized organization that are working on this full time and the broader ecosystem that are working to use, communicate with, fork, adapt, sell. And I think particularly, particularly in DAOs, if I think about the DAOs that I'm in that, that kind of died out last year and the DAOs that are still going strong, it's partly based around clarity of mission, right? Like for example, Gitcoin, incredibly clear public goods funding protocol. Um, some of the folks that work on Gitcoin have seen multiple rises and falls. They're not gonna be daunted by a certain amount of folks leaving the DAO at this point in time. That's just the cycle they've seen over time. And I think particularly for crypto and for web three, I think there was an awful lot of overfunding that happens 18 months ago. And um, you know, I think I think we've not seen a lot of overfunding in the DAO landscape because I think VC in general is a bit scared of dials, for better and for worse. Um, but I think ultimately every great community that I'm part of in crypto is about a certain group knitted together with a very clear set of ideals and a very clear sense of where they're going. Um And I think what's interesting is, is in this downturn, there's a lot more focus on, okay, what is the core thing we're working towards? How do we get there? Um, If there's not going to be any outside capital or outside attention, let's think of that as a great thing, which to my mind, it actually is a lot of the time. Um, You know, there's nothing worse than building under a microscope. I personally would find that a bit daunting. Um, And my happiest companies are companies that have two years of runway. They know very well, they're not going to get the next round. You know, I think a lot of crypto funds are, are kind of, you know, stepping back at this point in time, but you know, you're also seeing a lot of the behavioural norms of crypto move outside of blockchain-enabled companies. Um, you know, whether it's fractional ownership, like another block announced their new round today, that's a Swedish company that's around fractional ownership of music. Um, you know, whether it's Spotify doing token-enabled playlists, Reddit doing, you know, um, DAO-like, you know, bank accounts for subreddits. I think we're going to see an awful lot more behaviours outside of blockchain enabled companies that are leveraging norms that we might think of as kind of Web3 norms, I guess.
2: Yeah, I think think that's super interesting. And it's interesting to think about how you'll focus then based on that. What kind of a founder um, is the one that you're looking for, right? Because I think that there are people who know how to build technology and there are people who know how to build community and they're not always the same person. Um, But I think, you know, to, to do a task like you're describing well, you know, you kind of have to have this um, you know, magic center of the Venn diagram that that pulls yeah. in a number of different things. So, what 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 does that look like to you?
1: Yeah, I guess if I think about the founders that, you know, is it, I've got about thirty-eight angel companies. Um, and you know, I tend to look for. You know, I tend to do first rounds. Like, I, I very I very often back companies when there's no revenue, when there's a very emergent product, there's a very emergent community. And that could be anything from a WhatsApp that's popping, an early Discord, a GitHub. It, you know, it could be like they have run a bunch of dinners. It, it kind of varies an awful lot. And I guess what I'm looking for is, you know, the founder needs to have access to the community they're serving. That's, that's like table stakes. There needs to be a really clear problem they're solving for this group or with this group. Um, you know, I think... For example, I just did a company called Briefly that are um, GitHub for experimental science. It's my first bio company. Um, and I, I don't pretend to deeply understand machine learning biologists, but you know what they were talking about is you know, the three founders are themselves machine learning biologists. And in their day job, they used to work at a large UK-based bio company. In their day job, they'd be using Notion and Figma and Discord for all of their working tools. And then they'd go in the wet lab and be using paper and pen. And so what they're building is a kind of multiplayer you know, kind of a GitHub-like tool to help folks document experiments. And in that case, what I got excited by was really, if we think about the reputation systems that are really common in Web3, um, you know, the way that you build reputation, the way that it's quite common to work across a, a multiplicity of, you know, I, I'm such a pluralist at heart. I love to work across a variety of things at the same time. What I, get ex- what I got excited by in this use case was, you know, solving a very clear problem for a group they particularly had access to um, they'd already spoken to 200 people in this group. They already, ha- you know, they already had access to their first kind of true believers, I guess. And I think for me, it, it was kind of the the language they used in the way that they spoke to me about what they wanted to build. You know, I personally, I love this idea of missionaries versus mercenaries. You know, the idea that mercenaries are folks that are just in it for the money and they want to get really rich, and that's fine. They're, you know, they're, they're teach their own, and then missionaries are far more focused on problem solving. Um, They're far more focused on the intellectual satisfaction and the drive to fix the problem. And I guess I lean quite strongly towards the missionary side of things. Um, You know, obviously you want to back companies that are going to become incredible winners. But at the same time, you know, I think you get to be an incredible winner by serving a very particular need that this group has. Um, You know, Friends of Benefits, their version of that is it's so hard to pull together, you know, multidisciplinary communities across a variety of sectors. Like I still struggle with this. Like for me as a, you know, I'm a really big reader and writer and there are so few um, communities that really speak to all of the facets of my personality. And I think that's what those kind of groups do incredibly well is they're they're saying we will curate this group and you'll come to any event and have an amazing time. And that in itself is a product. Um, and I think I think when we think about products, Probably our definitions there need to kind of shift. You know, often we think of like a software product that's sold and sold and sold. But I, I, think, I think some of those terms will shift over time.
2: Let, let me, let me agree with you, and then, and then push on it one, one step further. I I, I totally. Um, I, I, uh, for two things. One, curation was the game that we wanted to play at Beats Music yeah. because we believe deeply in yeah. curation. I also believe that yeah. you're either a vertical or a horizontal, and there's death in yeah. the middle um so fully fully agree there i think uh also you know i agree and you know i always say that there's no such thing as crypto crypto is a collection of communities you know there's a vibrant bitcoin community a vibrant ethereum community and you know all you know and then within nfts there's you know vibrant communities um you know and then i i always the, the example i always come back to in my personal life is having worked at lvmh for five years you know lvmh is a a collection of maisons and LVMH is not supposed yes. to have meaning as an umbrella to the consumer. In, um you know it's it's really about the brand and the collection of brands. And the way that LVMH has scaled into such a great company is to go broader, not not deeper necessarily. I mean they do grow Louis Vuitton and Sephora, but at the same time they buy Romova and make it a um a better and and larger uh, and more profitable brand. Um, so just like strategy wise, it really speaks to me because I think fundamentally what the internet does, as Jeff Jarvis said in what would Google do, it moves us from um a mass market to a mass of niches. And it sounds to me like your your investment thesis kind of tracks along that same line. I think the thing I struggle with then is you know, I have friends who have fashion brands. Um they go out and get, you know, investment, potentially even VC investment. But, you know, to your point about, you know, building a company with a gun to your head, um, you know, a a fashion brand doesn't scale at the same rate that a startup might. Or or another way to say it is a vertical doesn't scale at the same rate that a horizontal might, right? A pitchfork isn't going to scale at the same rate that Reddit does. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not built to, it's not meant to. Um, So how do you think of that as an investor? Um, Because I would argue that effectively you're investing in verticals, which will um you know have a much longer time horizon to kind of yeah. you know become who they may ultimately be.
1: Well and I think I think the LVMH example is really interesting right because you know you've got 14 different I think 14 different maisons and each one has a very particular look and feel and I think That's
2: it's actually almost 100.
1: No. Okay. Yeah. I just one of my, one of my companies is selling into LVMH, uh, LVMH and but selling into 14 okay so this is good to know there are many more many more maisons to be unlocked. Yeah I think um I think a couple of things. I think firstly, you know, Ian, you're a master at this. I'm really interested in culture and how culture is shaped. Culture is not shaped by bankers. It's very much shaped by subcultures, frontier communities, street style. You know, you look down the pipeline and that's where things tend to, to kind of move. But I guess in terms of my investing thesis, you know, I very much invest in things that scale And I think there's a separate conversation around what type of money suits what type of thing, because I'm quite obsessed with, um, you know, when I first began working in startups in the late noughties, we really didn't understand venture like it wasn't in Europe, there really weren't that many VC firms at the time. And so, you know, one of my first companies sold partly because we had a lead investor that was kind of a private equity house dabbling in venture and didn't really understand what we needed to grow. And I, I meet lots of really interesting projects and communities where I say to them, do not take money from VC. Go and find angels because it's just a different thing. And I think, um, you know, again, if you're an angel, you know, this is you're investing your personal money. You're doing something that's intellectually interesting. You want to back it. You want it to win. But I think with your investor hat on, you know, you are naturally looking for things to scale in a certain way. Um, And I think, you know, there have been lots of examples, um, you know, Beats is one really interesting one where a sub community is a lot bigger than you think, or, you know, or or, or the audience for a particular product is bigger than you think. I think Figma is another one where, you know, Figma launched at a time when design was all of a sudden everything. And it turned out designers had nowhere to go. You know, you could you could argue, oh, a tool for designers. Oh, it sounds kind of small. No, actually, it's second largest private sale of all time. Um, And I think. I'm still early in my journey as an investor, so I do not pretend to have answers yet. Like, I, I'm not going to know if I'm good at this for at least five, six more years at least, if not longer. But I think um, something I keep reflecting on is how much market shift over time. Um, you know, how you can't say, well, there's no market for X because sometimes you don't know yet and the market will change, etc. cetera. Um, you know, I always think about, you know, I worked on Google Maps for a couple of years, you know, building out the kind of uh, the social layer. And, you know, at the time, you know, Google was Google Maps, incredible utility product, a lot of users, but at the same time the review product wasn't that great. We knew it. We were running it, and we were seeing like Facebook Places, Foursquare, Gowalla. Um, you know, I basically was twenty four seven paranoid somebody would take my lunch, um, in probably quite a good way. And I think what we learned is the Maps product was just good enough that we didn't. You know, we didn't. We still won. And I think, I think it reminds me that first of all, you know, markets change all the time. Second of all, that often. With something that looks niche can be a lot bigger than you think. And third of all, that sometimes a product that is not that great can still win because it's just good enough. So that, that was kind of a stream of consciousness, I guess, because I'm so new to this, Ian, I would love to have a better answer for you on that. I do think that, um, you know, I tend to invest in companies where community is the moat across a variety of verticals. So I do everything from Web3 to developer tools, to fintech, to health tech. For, for me, really, it's about the, you know, is the team incredibly strong? Is community the core engine behind it? Um, you know, can I be uniquely helpful to this? Because I think, um, you know, I don't want to be done money. Who wants to be done money? You want to be additive in the round. You want to be someone that actively can be, can be a useful investor, I guess.
2: And use that um, to just look through uh, the the lens of the last year. A lot of communities yeah. were created, probably very few of them will survive, but some, some will come out strong. Um, what do you, what do you make of the, of, of the landscape out there today? And what, and what got created, you know, throughout the last bull market.
1: If we think about, so I'm very active in like the regen public goods space. That, that's just one thing to note is that I'm not, I'm not, you know, in terms of NFTs, I was really active in crypto coven, but I wasn't active in a lot of communities there. I think to your point earlier, Ian you know, crypto is a series of sub-communities. You know, like even Bitcoin, there are, there are wings in Bitcoin where it's like, you're this, you're that. And I kind of love that. I think any thriving scene needs to have an awful lot of, of of corners in that scene. If it was very homogenous, it wouldn't be interesting. I think um what I'm seeing is a lot of folks that are kind of doubling down on their kind of core contributor role in a very particular space, but teams are getting cut. There's a lot less money. I think that makes the job harder in lots of ways. Like I'm just thinking... You know, a year ago, I remember speaking to a founder who just raised a bump around not a company that I invested in, but a founder that I'm close to. His main thing was he'd raised like 15 million. He had no idea how to spend it. Uh, you know, it was very stressful for him. And, and obviously, you know, that's not 100 million, but it's still if you're an early first time founder, that's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. Um, I think for him, for him to kind of have that message, I think, I think I think, in terms of communities, what's happening is a lot of people that would have left any hour have left fast, Again, that's not a bad thing. There's always this seepage effect with communities where some folks stay, some folks go. Um, I think a lot of the folks that have stayed have stayed for the right reasons because they are highly aligned with the mission. They ha- they very much want to build something versus um, profit really fast. You know, I think for me, the level of Discord DMs I get around things going to the moon has calmed down, which is great. Um, you know, I think I think the hardest thing has been seeing, you know, For most of us in the space, you know, none of my friends were affected by FTX. It just wasn't it wasn't an ecosystem that many of my contacts were involved in. But I think the hardest thing has been seeing friends outside the scene who were curious about it, be completely grossed out and fully off. You know, I've had so many LPs say to me on the fundraise journey, oh, you know, can we just go through all of your crypto investments just to make sure? And, you know, I've invested in in, um, four or five companies in the space, all of whom are doing amazing work, technically strong have a year's worth of runway, at least, more more than like two. I would bet on all of those founders again today. But I think there's something about, you know, to your point, Ian, around the framing of like crypto, blockchain, Web3, la, la, la. I think there was so much froth last year. That anything that looks froth adjacent is being scrutinized by the outside world. And I think that's hard. I think um, for lots of folks that came in last year and it was their first experience of the market going down, I think it's scary. And you know, anyone that's lived through a couple of tech up and down cycles before, they're like, okay, this is just part of the long-term journey. But I think um, I think that's kind of disconcerting. And I also think in general, and this is particularly on the DAO side of things, you know, we're still quite early at building the muscle of working as collectives versus hierarchies. You know, like for me, having run teams and classic tech companies, um, something that was quite funny, when I first began doing DAO contrib- contribution a couple of years back, I was working on a project with a, a much younger person as equals. And he said to me after a couple of calls, he said, can I give you some feedback? You keep trying to give me orders, but that's not how this works. And I was like, yeah, because I'm so used to being the boss. It's terrible. But if he hadn't have felt confident saying that to me, I might've carried on being directive in a way that was not cool. So I think um. I think in lots of DAOs, you're building the muscle of disagreeing, you're building the muscle of being leaderless, which I think is actually, I'm actually really excited about DAO-like structures outside of crypto native organizations. Um, I think this is how we build more resilient societies. But I also think, to me, having the ability to practice, focus, build, without having a lot of press, without having a lot of money, without having a lot of attention, I think that's a good thing. Um, And I think some communities are meant to rise and fall fast, and that's okay like Constitution Dow. What happened there? That was crazy. That was only a year and a half ago. That's
2: yeah. true. Good point. I hadn't thought of it until you said it. And, and I, I actually, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, there's so many questions I want to ask you. I, have, I actually have have two more. Uh, the first one is like, I'm curious to know more about why you think DAOs are, are kind of, you know, like a, a futuristic um, operating model. I, I, I think that they're definitely interesting. I also think you couldn't have built Apple with ah. a DAO right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, without yeah. a benevolent dictator, you, you wouldn't have Apple. So, um, you know, and I, as one person said to me, you know, DAOs have, uh, have one fatal flaw, democracy. Um, democracy. <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm curious, I'm curious, how, you know, what, what specifically you, you think will unfold there? Because I, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. I just can't personally tell where it goes yet.
1: Yeah, I hear you. And I think, um, I'm not suggesting that things start as DAOs on day one, right? I'm quite a fan of the progressive decentralization model. So, um, you know, to your point around Apple, there are times in organizations' lives when you need a benevolent dictator and times when you're able to decentralize a bit. Not that Apple has done this for lots of good reasons. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time with Filecoin um, a couple of years back, Protocol Labs, where they were starting this process. And I think, um, you know... I think very early on in many entities, startups, projects, whatever you want to determine, you need so, you need some kind of like absolute alignment. You need the, there to be a small group that start this thing. But I do think over time, if I look at, um, you know, particularly in the UK right now, we're at this we're at this weird place in society where there's a lot of distrust with governments. There's a lot of distrust with institutions. The institutions that we have ultimately are not fit for purpose in many ways, including universities. You know, there there are all of these 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 anchors of society that are not particularly modern and I think part of the challenge there is that people do not feel ownership you know to your point around that famous Oscar Wilde quote around the challenge of democracy is it takes too many evenings um I think I think we're so used to feeling many folks are used to feeling a lack of control in their lives and I keep thinking how would it feel if we had you know for me I've always loved ownership being accountable being part of things bigger than me um you know and that's If I look at the DAOs that I'm in, particularly Gitcoin, where, you know, they've been able to distribute a lot of money to great causes quite effectively with a very small team without traditional leadership. That's worked really well. And I think particularly the reason I've been following Dayside so closely is, you know, they're a very particular parts of society where there's real challenges around gatekeeping. And I think science funding is one of these where there's, you know, this is part of the reason why I funded that company I mentioned earlier, the bio company is that, you know, right now, the way you disseminate science is through peer reviewed papers, takes two years to process, you know, who gets to write papers, who gets funded to do research. It's the same people. So, you know, how do you how do you change that you have a more egalitarian system? Um, of which a DAO could be a really interesting way. I do think a challenge of DAOs is people are always like could, should, might, would. There's a lot of conditional tenses there. I guess I'm just I guess I'm just curious. Like I would love to see. It's really hard to experiment at kind of scale, but I keep thinking, um, you know, the Zuzalu uh, I've got the word Zuzalu experiment happening in Montenegro right now. It's like I want to see more cities being built. I want to see more. I want to see us testing out this stuff. You know, in the Renaissance, there's a lot of tests of new societies, many of which failed. But I do think that's the hallmark of an interesting era, is that people try and build some communes. You know, they they try and live differently, for better or for worse.
2: Yeah, I, it's super interesting. I, I really appreciate your response because I think you gave a lot of examples of places. Um, where a DAO could really make a big difference. And I think in free software um, over the last 30 years, yeah. we've seen a lot of, you know, projects like this, you know, and there's so, so many great free software projects. And the thing that comes to mind um, as you're saying it, I fully believe in um, Balaji's thesis that we're moving from God to state to network. Um, mm. And then, you know, since in, in network um, in, the, in the you know, as we move from state to network, we as humans will have the opportunity to be a part of more than one network state right? We, we, we will belong to multiple. Um, and we might choose yeah. to belong to one that has a benevolent dictator like Twitter. And we might choose to belong to one which is, you know, more distributed and, 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 and where we have more, more of a vote, uh, and, and a choice. So I think that's a super interesting way to, um, to, to ponder the future. Um, I'm sorry, Zoe, just one more question. I know you have a pile of questions too, but I'm just, I was, they were sort of linear. So I was, that's why I was string, string them together. You mentioned discord a couple of times. Uh, and, and, and I was curious, you know, we're talking about verticals and horizontals, you know, I'm still waiting for the, the better community platform, um, for a, yeah, for, for a wallet connected world. Is that in the purview of, of something you might invest in, or do you consider that outside?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, I think all of us want a better Discord, right? I think it's, it's. I think spaces to go and be together are really hard. You know, um, I've been kind of a bit disappointed by Blue Sky. I was so excited in the first week and then it kind of replicated Twitter for me in lots of ways. I think, um, I think there are many companies trying to take on Discord, but ultimately a lot of the time it's about being where people are, you know, this is kind of why the benevolent dictator of Twitter still is the benevolent dictators. I'm like, okay, I still want to reach a certain amount of people and to do that I have to be on Twitter. But I think, I think to your point, it's about, you know, optionality. I'm confident that at some point a product will come along and it will build a critical mass of, of folks that are like, Oh, this is better than discord. Cause I, cause I feel like the challenge of discord is, um, you know, the notifications, you know, it's nice to have that multiplicity of options of being in many spaces at once. But yeah, I think the wallet enabled, the wallet enablement, particularly the, the UI UX of that would be greatly pleasing to me. Like I still feel like nothing integrates effectively in web three. I'm still feeling like I'm kind of clunking around the world, trying to get stuff done. Like I was thinking about, um, in the heat of the craze about a year ago or whatever, um, I was helping my friend mint their first NFT and I sent her this thread on Twitter of like how to mint net of tea. And she was like, there's like 14 steps here. And I was like, I know, but do it, it's gonna be great. And I had to like call her and do it on the phone with her. And she's she's an investor, she's been in tech for 20 years. And it, and it just made me think about the um, you know, if everything new feels like a toy, and I generally think that's a fair sentiment. This doesn't feel like a toy. It feels very, feels very frictionful still. It feels like a jigsaw puzzle
2: perhaps yeah well just one more comment before Zoe's question the you know it doesn't scare me at all and the reason is I remember when I I always say this I I used to rip compact discs from the DOS command line and you know now I can say you know hey Siri play James Brown and it just happens and people get paid and it happens it'll work internationally you know you know it it, it took it took you know 20 plus years for that to become reality but it does happen
1: you know when you were talk when you were talking, Ian, I was thinking about, um, so I grew up in the u k and um did not travel as a kid at all. and I had the I had the opportunity of doing a year between university and school. and so I went to crazy. My teacher at school was like, "Hey, there's this program where you can go and teach in a school in South India." And I was like, great. And so the first plane that I ever got on was to South India for a year, which is quite mental. but um, at the time, I used to get a bus every Wednesday for an hour to the one internet cafe in the whole region. And often I would log on and it would take 20 minutes, you know, like that amazing sound, like the beat would drop and I would log on there, and I would have no email. It would be a whole week because none of my friends had email addresses at the time. There wasn't even spam. I would literally log into my Hotmail and there would be nothing. And there's something about that feeling you know, when I speak to my younger friends, and they're like, "Oh, blah blah blah," I'm always like, "Yeah, okay, you're right. It has improved so much," and yet my expectations now are like up here, right?
0: The thing that I think about a lot with Discord these days is like, we've just the, you've just seen like a huge drop in engagement across the Discord. Yeah. But then at Fwb, we have these great like in person events that are still you know people really want to go to, and they're well attended, and it's really fun, and you know the the like sentiment of FWB is like still alive in those. And then, you know, my, my job is, is digital events. And a year and a half ago, it was like booming. We had all kinds of like really interesting conversations going on. And now there's like, yeah. you know, frankly, like no one shows up for them. Right. And so it's really interesting to me to think about, you know, in a downswing like this, how do people re-engage? And it's been fascinating. Yeah. To me personally, because, you know, I think of it as, you know, we had this kind of like misalignment in values for like a lot of the people that fell off, I feel like. And I don't know if that's true, but that's like kind of my feeling is that there was this like casino aspect last year, right? Where everybody was speculating and coming in and now the people that are staying are the ones that are like there for the people, and not for the like potential upside and I'm like this isn't like necessarily even a question for you but I'm just super curious and excited to kind of like see how this all shakes out over the next year right like in the down market of like who stays and then also like without the hype like what does that do to shift these communities right because it changes the value proposition expectations have
2: definitely been reset
0: and, yeah, and, and I it think, goes back to kind of the beginning of FWB, where it felt like yeah. an IRC channel, right? Where it's, it was but, like
1: 10 people in an IRC but channel. It, <laughs> but I still think I still think that the the fest is gonna feel amazing, right? And actually on Absolutely. that on on the IRC channel, um, as a very heavy IRC user in the 90s, you know, for for community folks, there's this term eternal September. So like, you know, um there was this I think it was like September '94 or something, where like every single household in America got like an AOL CD in the post and got the internet. And every IRC channel, including mine in Gloucestershire, got flooded with new people and all of the early people were like, "This sucks because I think I think if you if you have I remember this...
2: that moment so well
1: yes yes yeah. yes it was a massive I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm
2: even older than you so but, yeah, but yeah. It was, and by the but way, nullsoft, was about- which was Winamp, yeah. we lived in town yeah. nullsoft, which means we managed yeah. the company in public
1: yeah like the way
2: that we communicated to each other, there were people yeah. in that channel that went on to become Songkick or not Songkick yeah. uh um, Last.fm which was something else before yeah. yes, Audio Scrabbler. Yes, yes. Those guys were yeah. were in our chat. I mean Nap, you know, Sean Fanning uh yes. you know was was Napster there. I never saw you in Pound Nullsoft Sarah. I'm surprised.
1: <laughs> maybe I had maybe I had a secret screen name Ian. Maybe that's it. <laughs> no, I do but I do think, you know, like if you think about that beautiful example, you don't need a lot of people to make a scene. You need the right yeah. people to make a scene. And I think, um, like I was thinking yesterday, the Taoist conference last year in Amsterdam in April 2022 was like very foundational for me. It's when I decided to do. You know, like I was already very deep in Taoist at the time, but that's when I was like, OK, I'm going to do this fund. And it's because I had this one conversation with this guy who was a Friends of Benefits member. I never got his name. We were talking on the steps of a building in Amsterdam and we were talking about like flow versus control. It was a classic kind of the classic kind of conversation you have at like one in the morning with some total stranger. Um, and he just, you know, it was just like a really rich conversation with somebody that doesn't know me where we didn't want or need anything from each other. We were just having this really decent exchange. And it made me think about how, you know, I hear you that, there's, that the engagement now is down compared to last year, but I would I would bet the quality of the engagement is better just in terms of folks showing up, wanting to have real conversations, um, you know, wanting to kind of really be part of the scene to build this thing together versus coming in because they've read about it in the Times or whatever. Um, you know, I think so much of that kind of frothy press last year was challenging because, you know, you get folks crashing in, wanting stuff immediately, and you know very well, like to build something great takes work on everybody. You know, it's effort, right? You have to keep showing up. It's it's consistency, yeah. um, it's energy. It's all these all these good things.
0: Well, I have a totally separate track question that I want to ask, and it's absolutely selfish. So I, um, as you saw, kind of before we started recording, I have an 11 month old kid. Yes, congratulations. Um, thank you, and I, and so I. Uh, have been, you know, at, just starting to get back to work um, after being home with just an infant for the last 10 and a half months. And so my, one of the questions that I had for you was just like, how do you, cause I also consider myself a pluralist. Like I'm, I have three different consulting jobs right now and Matt yeah. is in a million places. And so I wanted, I wanted some mom advice Like juggling having an infant and, you know, working in this crazy field of, you know, tech and investing and those kinds of things. Just an open ended question of like, how do you balance the two? Because I'm just learning. and I want to learn from everyone.
1: (laughs) I mean, look, I don't think I I think the first thing is have the right partner, have the right co-parent. Like without that, everything fails. Like I think, um, you know, I went back to work when my son was nine weeks old. Would not recommend that, by the way. Um, you know, I was living, I was living in Silicon Valley at the time, and that was kind of a norm there. And um, you know, I think my son is four now, and you know, I didn't grow up with a mum that worked. Like, I I didn't know any women that worked when I was a kid. And so, for me, if I think about being a good parent to him, particularly, it's about me being really present when I'm with him. But him also realizing that I care about a lot. You know, I'm not. You know, to me, it's really important. That he sees me work. I go on work trips. I travel, I have interests, I have friends, I have identity outside of being just his mum. I think being his mom is incredibly important to me, but I think, um, I guess it's really about just, just honoring the person that your child is. And and when they're four you start to have a very clear sense of character. I thought thought my son was such an introvert until he began talking. And then then I realized my son is incredibly high energy. Uh, He's very outdoorsy. Um, He loves to read. He's, uh, you know, four and a half is a really magical age. It's so fun. And I think I think now he's old enough to be like, oh, you're going away again, and part of you, your heart is like, Ugh, but you also have to be like, no, actually, this is important for me to do this thing. So I don't think I have any particular tips beyond have a child with the right person, um, because I think I think to me that's that I, I wouldn't have had a child unless I knew that the person I was going to have a child with would be an equal parent in that way.
2: S- well, similar yeah. question, or you know, but slightly different. I've talked to a couple of founders of communities um, you know, one has found a safe landing for their community. Um, the other yeah. I spoke to last night is running out of runway um, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go back to art and, you know, s- sit it out. Um, what's your advice uh, you know, for someone that got started in the frothy market, they're trying to make it, you know, to the long term, Um, you know, but it's, but we're, but winter will probably be dark.
1: Yeah. I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think firstly, You know, I'm really interested in the exit to community movement, Uh, ete.co, I want to say. I'll send you the link afterwards. But it's basically um, it's it's a movement whereby companies can become owned by their communities. The first things first, if the founder is at the end of their emotional capital. And I actually think, you know, the first shutdown that I had in my portfolio was uh, a, a founder that just ran out of emotion, didn't run out of money had lots of user love, had lots of great partners on their platform, but just simply had reached the end of their personal runway of being able to run this company anymore. So I think first things first, it's okay if you've come to the end of your time as the founder of this company. There are all kinds of options, one of which is handing over the company to your community, which I personally think is kind of cool. But I think secondly, um, you know, turn to your network. I think, you know, for me, raising this fund at a historically bad time to raise a fund as a woman, you know i think i'm the first woman to raise a fund in europe who's not been a vc before i would not have been able to do it without my peer network or without my friends that i've gone to and been like oh i had a really bad day today how's it going so i think um you know sh- you know in the same way that i'm guessing a lot of these founders have shown up for their friends and they've had hard times don't be afraid to ask for what you need and and seek advice and seek guidance but i think beyond that you know so many of my companies have taken a really hard look at what their organization does and said okay This is kind of how we could kind of, you know, lower our burn. This is how we think about focusing on what really matters. Um, And sometimes the answer is actually, this is not a super viable company and that's okay. Um, So I think, I think the most important thing to interrogate there is, do you have the energy, if it's going to be another year of this, do you have the emotional energy for this? Because You know, if you don't, that's okay. And maybe it's better to kind of decide that now versus six months time.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing that I found in this is that there is a difference between, you know, a CEO and an artist. Um, And, you know, that's why, you know, LVMH, to come back to that again, their investment thesis is, you know, basically surrounding creative people with operational efficiency. Um, so, you know, really be sure you have those people and the right people. Um, I think in, in all cases, uh, you know, that that's probably the combination, you know, Spike Jones told me once that for every project, he has an executive producer and a creative director whom he trusts. Um, and that's for a creative person. I was really blown away by that. It's always stuck with me. Um, because I think that that is, it makes so much sense. It's the way Spike scales. Right, and he can yeah. live his life without, you know, being the only guy, and being the business guy, and being the creative guy yeah. on every single project. You know, he um, he gets to lead and to and to delegate, and and great leaders delegate.
1: Yeah, and no, actually, I love that example. I think, um, because what it speaks to, and I'm a really big fan of Spike Jones. I, I think what it speaks to is knowing yourself and kind of knowing what you need. Right, and I think for me, with my teeny tiny humble fund, operations is not my strongest suit. I've had to really stretch myself in that space, you know, it's not only about hiring the right service providers, but also like building out your little board of folks around you that you can go to and be like, hey, this thing in the term sheet, is this okay? Is it not okay? And so I think, um, you know, for a lot of the cultural founders or, you know, founders that come from unusual backgrounds, and I love founders that come from left field backgrounds, that's a particular, particular favorite. It's about understanding, you know, where, where might you need more help? where don't you want to focus your time and energy? I think it's okay as well to say out loud, you know, in Spike's case, you know, operations, the minute I can afford to hire somebody on that, I will, because that's not what I love. It's not what I'm good at. And I think um, it's okay to say out loud, I'm really great at this. And I want to lean into this and step back from other stuff and accept that that's not my strong suit.
0: Yeah, I definitely, definitely felt that uh, as a former founder myself. That was uh, why I finally ran out of emotional capital because I was still solo and you can't keep doing it solo. It's just, it's not, it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, um, I think you need,
0: yeah. You need a village. Like, uh, I'm not sure if you need a democracy, but I think you need a village of people. Um, yeah. I think we'd love to ask the kind of, we're asking everyone in this series, a series of three questions. Um, and I realized, Dad, that we, we messed up and didn't ask the, the bonus question that we asked last time. So I'm going to lead with that, which is, uh, it's no, it's good. It's very important. What is the first concert that you ever saw?
1: It was basically. It's a band called Sneaker Pimps. They're like um, I like them. It was like nineteen ninety three or something. There actually weren't a lot of gigs that came to my hometown, so I went to see mm-hmm. every single. I was a. Ma- I'm really into music, and basically, I went to every single gig in my hometown because it was like live music. Oh my god! But I actually don't. Yeah. They're not, not my favorite band. They're not they're on just heavy rotation today. I remember Sneaker Pimps. I couldn't, I, yeah. no offense to
2: Sneaker Pimps. I couldn't name a song, but I remember Sneaker Pimps.
1: I'm actually seeing Suede soon, who are the wow. second band I ever saw live. And I'm a very big Suede there fan still. Love Suede, yeah. great band, very much of that era.
2: Yeah, that, same go. era, same era, different yeah. style.
1: Because that was the fun,
0: that's the fun question. Um, so the this series we're talking, you know, a little bit uh, to a lot about creative custody. And so just broadly, like, What does creative custody mean to you? You touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but just to
1: reiterate. Yeah, I guess I think about custody to me implies stasis in some ways, whereas actually if I look at the cultures that I love and, you know, like I love music, um, I used to run a clothes shop. I'm really interested in fashion. I have a lot of friends who are artists in different ways, whether they write novels or they run theater companies. I think um, creative custody means the act of in some way, stewarding a piece of culture, evolving that piece of culture, you know, if I think about like, um, the way that we think about sampling in music, um, the way that we think about, you know, giving a head nod to inspirations in fashion design, I guess creative custody to me means honoring what's come before by building what comes next. Um, and you know, finding ways to honor our influences, I guess, I I guess I would go down like a kind of copy left route when I think about creative custody. And making sure that artists get paid. That's actually quite important to me, like making sure that folks who do creative work full time get paid for it.
2: Yeah, we we touched on this a bit, but this is a little more specific. You know, we have this, um, you know, to me, the Internet and the IRC channels that we were on were fundamentally a revolution of information. Um, Mm. And now we're embarking on a revolution of value and i think there are a lot of entrepreneurs that like to be at that bleeding edge um but they don't quite know where to jump in or how to jump in what advice would you give you know to an entrepreneur um you know who does kind of want to move from you know the world of the internet uh you know to the world of creative custody uh web3 wallet connected apps i prefer to call them
1: yeah i think i think what you're speaking about is an evolution in thinking right it's it's about where you get your influences from um, you know, in the same way that I would not have launched a SaaS fund because SaaS funds live in this world of kind of old-fashioned value and information. And I think I think there's just so many shifts happening with the internet and shifts happening with how we experience things. So I guess um, the only advice I would give would be to open your mind, go meet people, go and talk to folks, um, seek unusual influences, I guess. I think in general, entrepreneurship, you know, we get stuck with the same endless tweet threads around here are 10 AI tools you need to know. And it, that drives me a bit mad. It's like, that's not where I find my inspiration these days or ever really.
0: And and finally, like, I think it's really fun. It's a fun thought experiment and dad and I talk about it all the time, but like, what are the things that are difficult to imagine today, but that will be inevitable in, in 20 years, right? Like that will be a part of our everyday life in 20 years.
1: Yeah. I think when you asked me this question, the first thing I thought of, Um, and this is a controversial one that some of my friends hate. I don't think we're going to have countries in the same way anymore. I think we'll have transnational networks. Um, so in the same way that I don't, I'm quite interested in city states as a whole, I think we'll do away with the idea of citizenship by country and we'll have far more free floating ways of thinking about belonging.
2: The network state. Yeah. I think, uh, I, you know, my, my fear with that, and I asked Balaji this question on a previous ledger podcast is I don't think the states go quietly.
1: I know it's true. And I think I think whenever the person who challenged me a lot on this, when I said it over dinner once, I was like, yeah, it's it's a bumpy road, but I think it's worth it. I think, um, you know, if you think about all of us, or or at least if we're thinking about the decline of conventional institutions, something must replace those. I think there are so many things waiting in the wings to come next. And there are so many of us who are citizens of a particular country that constrains us in ways we don't want to be constrained. So I think the challenge is: how do you serve all members of society, including those that are much less fortunate? And what are the institutions that we need to set up that will do so?
2: I love that. Yep. I agree with you. I I, I worry about the bumpiness. Sarah. Know. Thank you so. Know, right? Thank you so much for for joining us. I uh, you know yeah, I, I, I really so look much. forward to to future conversations. And next time you make it to Paris, please give us a call.
1: Definitely. I would love that. Thank you. Thanks so much. See you soon. Thank you, guys.
2: This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment or tax advice. Do your own research and the loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.